Welcome to the Leadership Disrupted Podcast. This is Dan Rust. Today we're going to focus on the topic of the leader as coach. And recently I discussed this topic on a webinar with several hundred participants. And I thought you might find the content interesting, so I'm going to share the audio of the webinar here. You might also want to look at the show notes for this episode because I'll include some of the specific coaching process and coaching questions that you'll hear me sharing on the audio. You can find all of those questions in the show notes for this podcast. So without further ado, here is that recording. The topic of the leader as coach is one that's particularly um, interesting to me, um, particularly important to me. And uh, I thought I would start with um, a letter that I received, uh, letter, uh, old school word is actually an email that I received. Um, this was, goes back about six months ago. Uh, when I, when HarperCollins first published Workplace Poker, uh, there was a, a, a wave of readers who would reach out because my email address was included in the uh, in the uh, book, um, and they would reach out with um, situations, uh, challenges, questions, um, and 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 since that time, uh, because many of them connect with me on LinkedIn as well, um, oftentimes I will get uh, stories, anecdotes, uh, and again requests for guidance uh, via LinkedIn as well. And so I do have a lot of interesting, challenging stories that I've collected up over the years. And and when it comes to leaders in the coach role, there's, there was one, I was, I was going through them and there was one that just was kind of particularly seemed relevant. So I'm gonna start by, by reading it to you. Um, here's how it goes. Uh, hello, Dan. When I read your book, Workplace Poker, I found it useful, but to be honest, most of the stories you shared seemed extreme. I'd not ever had to deal with really difficult situations like the ones you described until now. I'm a senior graphic designer working for the same creative firm for the past eight years. We have a team of six designers, each with a particular specialty area. And recently, one of our team members was promoted to be the graphic design supervisor when our previous supervisor left the firm to take a position elsewhere. So our new supervisor, Brenda, has a very different approach to to management. Yes, she was promoted because she's really good as a graphic designer, but the rest of us are really good too. And she seems to think that her job is to review our work and tweak it. She always finds something to adjust, or in her words, to refine, to change a font, to adjust a color scheme, reduce the amount of copy, or increase the amount of copy. Every one of us is experiencing the same thing, and we talk about it behind her back. But when we try to address it directly, she gets annoyed, and she says, all I'm doing is trying to help you get better, and we can all get better, right? That's about it. And she loves to talk about Steve Jobs and his incredible design sense and how focused he was on the details and how hard he was on his people. But look at all the great things that he accomplished. She is clueless about how this makes her look as if she is comparing herself to Steve Jobs and giving herself permission to be harsh and demanding. 
One thing she is really good at though, is working with clients. She knows exactly what to say and how to say it, and she really sells her work to them, which is one of the reasons why she was promoted. And she really sold herself to our big boss, the, the VP of Creative Services. They have a really tight relationship, and I just know that if I try to address this with the VP, it's gonna come back on me. So here is one specific behavior I'm hoping to change in her. She has started attending every client meeting where any of our graphic designers are presenting final work to a client. We used to attend these meetings on our own, usually with just the client and our account representative. But now our new supervisor says that she wants to get to know every client, which I suppose is fair enough. But in every one of these meetings, she very subtly makes comments about the design work where she takes credit, at least a bit of credit, for anything the client responds well to. And if the client doesn't like something, she'll immediately throw us under the bus. Uh, my, approach, my approach when a client isn't immediately getting our design is to explain it to them, help them see it through our eyes, and often we're able to help them come to really like what we've done. But Brenda just immediately agrees with them and says something like, I'll work with the design team to get this right for you. Or if the client really likes our work, Brenda will say something like, yeah, it's fantastic. We really worked to get this one right. Again, just the fact that she has to make any comment at all feels like she's trying to take at least partial credit for the work. I know I'm not the only person on our team who's looking for a new job. I like it here, but I'm not going to work under this cloud and, and, and I'm not gonna work with Brenda much longer. Any advice? Now, for the purpose of today's conversation or webinar, uh, I'm, I'm not gonna go deeply into the advice that I provided to the person who wrote this, uh, although um, I will share that uh, there are definitely at least two sides, three sides, sometimes four sides to every story. And we did spend a bit of time going back and forth, trying to at least put ourselves in the shoes of Brenda and understand what might be driving some of this behavior because the approach that I took with the, the writer was if you were going to coach Brenda, the first thing you would want to do is understand what's driving the behavior um, and and so put yourself in Brenda's shoes. So we that, that was a little challenging at first because of course it's always uh, easier and uh, a little more emotionally satisfying to just uh, you know shake one's fist. Um, before you know, stepping in to try try to really understand the situation. But what it what it did highlight for me is that many of us as as leaders, we don't necessarily get formal coaching ourselves on how to coach. Um, and when I ask leaders, particularly leaders who have been flagged either by a 360 feedback or in some other way they've been flagged as um, having some challenges when it comes to their own approach to coaching. Um, generally, what they will say is various versions of, hey, I, I think what I'm doing is best. No, no one has coached me otherwise. This is what seems to work for me or it seems, seems to have always worked for, for me. Um, or, or the attitude that, hey, a little tough love never hurt any, anybody. So um, I think sometimes leaders do resist being coached regarding their particular coaching style, because they're doing what comes naturally, they're doing what makes sense to them. And, and generally speaking, 
there is a reason behind their their particular or current approach not necessarily the right reason not necessarily a valid reason but in in fact nobody does a bad job on purpose uh, nobody does poor coaching on purpose and so when we are working with a leader to help coach the coach so to speak you do have to take a coaching approach you do have to help them come to see themselves differently not simply um you know layer on the, the, the criticism but what we hear from employees is hey i'm getting feedback but it's not well informed and sometimes it's just outright wrong or i'm getting feedback or coaching but it's delivered long after a situation occurred or long after an incident so memories are fuzzy we remember things differently um also sometimes i'm not getting feedback directly i'm getting indirect feedback or indirect coaching i'm hearing through the grapevine that so and so isn't happy with this or so and so wishes that something would be different in a particular way and then we also get feedback that um the manner of the coaching or the feedback is is too harsh or judgmental or sometimes even even punitive and um I, you know, some of this problematic coaching, and whether you call it coaching, whether you call it feedback, um, I think of feedback as sort of micro coaching. Feedback is typically, uh, you know, giving somebody uh, information regarding a particular incidence or a particular situation, whereas coaching tends to be a little more long term, a little broader in, in terms of its perspective. But um, when it comes to challenging coaching situations or challenging uh, coaching behavior patterns, um, I kind of characterize them in three different ways. Um, one, I like to call the punisher. Um, and I know that might be a little harsh, but, um, and in fact, I don't think most leaders go out of their way to whack or punish the people that they're coaching, but they may not realize how sometimes even small comments, even what they perceive to be modest comments, in fact, can be perceived as, as very uh, difficult, tough, demeaning. And I will say that the modern work environment has shifted in the last 20 years, particularly in the last five years, and employees are more sensitive to critical feedback than they were perhaps 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, I, I am of a generation where I kind of grew up in the uh, the tough love uh, generation of, of, of coaching. You were you were given your feedback harshly, and um, and if you didn't like it harshly, well, how about even more harshly? Those were your, your your two options. However, in today's environment, it doesn't make. I know people like to use the term uh, snowflakes. It doesn't make everyone a snowflake. It just means that. People in the workplace today, and not just the younger generations, even more mature workers, we are more sensitive to critical feedback. We're more sensitive to feedback that is off point. And so when feedback is delivered in too harsh of a manner, it can feel like a punishment. When feedback or coaching is delivered publicly, that is critical. That definitely can feel like punishment. Even if it's such a, a minor issue or comment, when it is made publicly, it, it 
ad absolutely uh, ramps up the intensity of the feeling related to that particular feedback. So whenever I uh, observe a leader giving coaching or feedback in a manner where I can tell from afar that the person who's on the receiving end is in any way feeling put upon, criticized, or just basically feeling bad, I think of that as the uh, sort of a punisher version of, of coaching. Equally problematic is the opposite end of the spectrum, where you have people who view themselves as coach cheerleaders, where essentially all they deliver is positive feedback. All they do is lift people up. All they do is highlight the positive, and they hope if they ever so gently mention that something is imperfect, while the vast majority of things are fantastic and perfect, they're hoping that the individual will pick up on what the message is. I will say, based upon the feedback that I receive, based upon the conversations that I have with, with uh, employees about their leaders, this kind of leader is equally challenging. When, employee, when an employee has a cheerleader leader, cheerleader manager, and, it, and gets nothing but cheerleading, it can actually make it very challenging when someone new comes along and doesn't have that exact same style. And in fact, as I was working with the, the person who wrote the original letter that we started off with today, and we were dissecting the scenario, and we, we ended up having a, a, a conversation online uh, where we were able to speak with each other, and I was able to get more color commentary. And, and by asking more questions, what I came to realize was that the, the previous supervisor was in fact the cheerleader, was, hey, everything is beautiful, everything is wonderful, you are great, 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 great. And so now the transition to someone who, either correctly or incorrectly, and, and the writer did acknowledge that some of the feedback was actually correct. Some of it was actually valid or viable, but it was more of the tone, it was more of the style that was, that was creating the, the challenge. Well, part of that was when you transition so rapidly from a cheerleader to a, I'll use the word punisher, um, it feels even more punishing. It feels even more challenging. And then we have another kind of coaching that I call hit and run. Some people refer to it as drive-by coaching, where um, a situation occurs or a situation exists, and uh, a leader who's been very disconnected, who is not really part of the scenario, part of the situation, or has been leading or managing from afar, suddenly gets some information, swoops in very quickly, rat-a-tat-a-tat-a-tat, uh, drives by and provides instant coaching feedback, do this, 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 and this differently, and then swoops out uh, and uh, probably won't swoop back in until there is another situation in a few weeks or months or whenever. Hit and run coaching is not only challenging because of the style, but it's quite often uh, just not good feedback. It's not accurate. It's not useful. It's not credible because the leader hasn't taken the time to really understand the situation, hasn't taken the time to educate themselves. So they, they oftentimes both deliver what I'll call incorrect coaching and they deliver it in a manner that makes it that much more challenging. So, so 
when we ask ourselves, well, you know, why are there so many examples of leaders who are delivering suboptimal feedback? I think really the question is uh, answered because leaders don't get a lot of coaching themselves in the area of coaching. Um, they tend to adopt whatever comes naturally, or what's quite common is they adopt what they grew up with, what they've learned, what they've experienced, or what they see as being the norm within their work environment. So to kind of get our heads around the the term coaching, um, I think it makes sense to very briefly kind of define what I mean by the term coach versus a, a mentor versus a sponsor. And the way I, I like to explain it is that a coach is someone who observes and guides you. Uh, a mentor tends to be someone who discusses things with you. Um, and when you have a sponsor in your work environment, that's typically someone who spends more time talking about you to others in a positive way. They're sponsoring you um, as opposed to necessarily providing mentoring or coaching. Now these roles can, of course, they can, they can overlap, but it's, it's important to understand that these are distinct roles um, if you've got someone in the work environment, uh, uh, either a formal leader or an informal leader, who actually does take the time to observe, uh, who provides guidance for your development, oftentimes the, the, the guidance is in, is in a soft skills area, but it can also be in a technical skills area. Um, you and your coach kind of own that relationship together. Sometimes you reach out to that person. Sometimes they reach out to you when they've observed when they've observed things. That that is a classic workplace coaching uh, situation, coaching relationship. A mentor tends to be used when we're talking about someone who's providing career guidance, who's providing um, sort of you know from the from twenty thousand feet. Uh, who will ask a lot of questions and help guide some of your bigger career decisions. They're not necessarily coaching your specific skills or capabilities. And then, as I said, a sponsor is typically a senior leader or another person who's using their influence in the organization or their influence in other organizations to help you obtain high visibility assignments, to help promote you, to raise you up, because they've decided that you are worthy of that uh, promotion. They're wor you're worthy of raising your profile. Um, so we have three different roles. And what we're going to really be talking about today is the, the coaching role. And when you think about, well, where do most of us start to decide what coaching really means? For most of us, it begins with sports. Um, whether you are a sports fan or not, or a fan of any particular sport or not, in our early years, sporting and sport coaches tend to be our early models for what coaching is supposed to be or what coaching is supposed to mean. And um, that's not inherently good or bad, but it is. it can be problematic because in sports, typically the coach actually is there on the playing field. They see what's happening. They're able to quickly give feedback immediately. You, you run a play or you do something in particular, and the coach is there within minutes to provide specific guidance, specific feedback. And it tends to be very factual because it's observed behavior of very specific actions on the playing field. 
Whereas in the world of work, oftentimes leaders are coaching behavior that they don't see directly, or they're coaching because they've seen perhaps the results of the behavior, or they're getting feedback from others about the behavior. Imagine if a sports coach had to actually stay uh, like in the stadium somewhere, had to stay in a locked room, and the only information the coach was getting was other people coming in to tell the coach about the play. Hey, coach, let me tell you how it went. But the coach didn't actually get to observe for themselves how it went. That's a very challenging scenario for a, a, a typical sports coach. And yet leaders are put in that kind of situation every single day where uh, they don't necessarily observe the direct behavior itself. Sometimes you do, obviously, that uh, tends to make it easier. But the majority of times what we are coaching to is not directly observed behavior, which is important then or makes it important that we go out of our way to explore to gain an understanding of of what's really happening and not simply accept feedback from one particular source or see you know a, a particular result and because we see something on a data screen or something in uh, an update on salesforce.com or something else just one piece of data is typically not enough to provide good effective coaching so rather than using the typical sports coach as the, the mental metaphor for coaching. I, I think maybe what's more in, al in alignment is, is um, a sports psychologist. So a sports psychologist doesn't always observe the behavior on the playing field. Sometimes they do, they, and, and, and sometimes they will use that as part of their information. But a sports psychologist or a sports behavior analyst or a sports performance consultant, there are lots of names for them, um, they typically work to get into the head of the athlete. They're not simply adjusting actions on the field. In fact, the best of them aren't necessarily that interested in technique. They're interested in what's going on inside the head that's ultimately driving the behavior or the 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 the, the, the challenging technique, whatever that might be. Um, but even with that, as a, as a sports psychologist, it's a limited metaphor for uh, thinking what, what does good coaching behavior look like? But I think it comes closest if we're staying in the, um, in the sporting realm. So that does kind of lead to the question, all right, so what is a good leader as a coach? What does a leader as a coach look like and it is a different set of behaviors than simply the pure leadership behaviors. A leader, a manager, a supervisor, there are lots of responsibilities that come along with that job. Coaching is not necessarily one of them. And every opportunity to manage somebody's performance or manage somebody's behavior is not necessarily a coaching opportunity. Coaching is a very distinct relationship and some managers inherently based on their style they have a relationship that lends itself very well to coaching other managers because of their natural leadership style the relationship they have with their subordinates does not always lead itself to an optimal coaching relationship because a coaching relationship requires trust trust from the coachee 
what a person who's being coached needs number one more than anything else is a sense of certainty that you are doing this in their best interest you're not just correcting them to correct them that there's a certain trust level required in a coaching relationship that goes beyond um a, a pure managerial relationship so just because you are a manager or are a supervisor or are any kind of leader and actually just because you have the power to coach does not inherently make you an effective coach that level of trust between the coach and the coach e is is critical and if that relationship between the coach and the coach e is not right if you can't get that right i'm sorry any of the techniques that we discussed today I mean, you'll get you'll get some benefit from them, but you're not going to get the the huge benefit if you don't have that bonded, trusting relationship between the coach and the coachee. And it starts with credibility. The coachee has to believe, has to know that you, as the coach, you're credible, meaning you are competent. If you are a sales leader. And um, you may be familiar with the term carried a bag. That's a term used by some salespeople to reference someone who has, quote, carried a bag, who has actually sold. If you are a sales leader and you have not carried a bag, if you have not been successful in a direct sales role, that doesn't mean you can't be a coach. It means you do, though, have a credibility challenge that you should not shy away from acknowledging. You should recognize that you have a credibility issue and a competency issue it may be that you need to do some on the ground field work that you need to get more uh in tune with the on the ground realities of the selling in your particular environment what that whatever that environment may be and and i, I and i'm going to reference um sales coaching scenarios a few times uh during this uh session uh, but obviously, sales coaching is just one part of the overall uh, coaching. But credibility is, in, is important. And I think as a leader, it's important to have a level of self-awareness that where does credibility come from? Credibility comes from and a demonstrated ability to do in whatever it is that we are, whatever behaviors we are coaching for. We have to be the model or be a credible model for that behavior. And if you can acknowledge that there are certain areas where you are not yet a credible model, that is, that's great self-coaching. That probably means there's some work that you need to do in order to gain that credibility. And a lot of that credibility, as I said, comes from competence, comes from competence in those certain areas. Now, as we, as we talked about in the example at the very beginning, we had a, a new supervisor who was a very, very competent graphic designer. So there was no question about her competence in that area. The, really, the question was her competence in her manner and style of coaching others related to, to that. Now, if you had a situation where a new supervisor did not have that same level of deep graphic design background, then you might actually have some very tactical competence issues that uh, people might struggle with, the coaches might struggle with as well. And then finally, along with competence, I think humility is very important as a coaching mindset 
because most of us, we tend to do somewhat knee-jerk coaching. We take information in, we quickly assess it, and then we want to coach to whatever we think the desired behavior should be. And humility tends to lead to more exploration. Humility tends to lead us to ask more questions, to ask better questions, to step back and say, all right, I, you know, my instinctive reaction to the situation is X. Let me step back and see, might there be other valid or viable points of view? And in fact, humility is the first area of coaching that I, um, I engaged in with the, the original writer of the, of the letter that I shared with you. With you, I asked her to step back and say, I get it that you're angry. I get it that you're frustrated. I get that you see that things should be a particular way. And the way you think things should be is the way that your pre previous supervisor uh, operated. Because th that's the easiest way of all, simply having a cheerleader, somebody who just does nothing but celebrate you, of course, who wouldn't love that, who wouldn't feel fantastic about that. Might I ask you, um, were there any ways in which that previous supervisor helped you or prodded you or heaven forbid pushed you or encouraged you to be better to grow to and her answer was well no but i didn't really need that because i'm i'm self-driven i'm self-motivated i'm i'm always working on my own skills okay understood fair enough so you had a supervisor who was a cheerleader nothing inherently wrong with that except that now you have a supervisor who has a very different style and may in fact have some value to bring potentially and just guiding that person toward a sense of humility a sense of maybe you don't have all of the answers immediately that humility actually opened her up to new possibilities new ways of perceiving things and the same is true if when you are the coach just a little bit of positive, constructive humility. Even though we expect leaders to have the answers, we expect leaders to be the fountains of wisdom, we expect leaders to lead, but that doesn't mean we always are the ultimate fountain of all wisdom and that we always know the ultimate answer to every situation. So I would just encourage you to coach with a degree of humility. And in addition, there are five broad I'll call them traits that I see in leaders who are very impactful coaches in the workplace. Um, and, and a trait kind of overlying these five traits is that they do recognize the coaching relationship is a different relationship. They don't just assume, okay, I'm your supervisor, I'm your leader, inherently I'm your coach. They understand coaching is its own unique thing. It's not part of the annual performance review process. It's not a part of managing performance. I mean, it's related to it, but they do view coaching as a separate skill set, a separate kind of relationship. And so what are the traits that I've seen in highly effective leaders as coaches? Uh, trait number one, I'm going to combine these two adjectives. They're competent and they're observant. Because they're competent, they know what to look for. They know what to observe. If you lack competence in a particular area, you don't necessarily even know what to look for. So, for example, um, I worked with a leader who was a VP of sales, 
and she was responsible for driving the sales productivity of a relatively large group of sales people 18 salespeople were reporting to her 18 account managers that was their their job title but they were they were sales reps each of them had a territory she was the direct leader of these 18 individuals she was more of a data person she'd actually come up through the the, the marketing department of of their business she had never quote unquote carried a bag and so she didn't necessarily have uh, a great deal of tactical on the ground sales experience. So being a very data-driven person, this is an organization that used uh, salesforce.com as their pipeline management tool. She tended to focus a lot of her uh, time on the later stages of the pipeline within Salesforce. She was looking at opportunities, she was managing data, and, and then she was providing quote unquote coaching when she felt that somebody's conversion rate from you know, proposal to uh, actual deal, when their conversion rate was lower than average, she would talk to them about their conversion rate and what can you do to improve your conversion rate. The reality is most of the research in sales coaching shows us that the most value in sales coaching occurs in what some people will call early pipeline coaching, meaning coaching to the early stage behaviors when someone is first engaging with a prospective client, those initial prospecting calls, converting those prospecting calls to actual needs analysis, dialogue or conversations. Those early stages are where coaching creates the greatest value but most sales managers and leaders actually focus their coaching on the later stages. And, and there are a lot of reasons why. In the, in the later stages of the pipeline, suddenly in Salesforce, it says, ooh, this is a half a million dollar potential deal. That grabs your attention much more than saying, hey, I'm about to call on XYZ Corporation. I've done a, an initial bit of groundwork uh, for them. Uh, but I'm really looking to get a, a foot in the door with, with that company. That is not nearly as sexy as they've requested a proposal that could be worth up to X number of dollars, whatever that might be. But if you are competent and observant, that's the first trait that I'm talking about, you will know what really you should be looking for, what behaviors are going to drive the most productivity in any particular environment. So trait number one, competent and observant. Trait number two, having a genuine interest and energy for coaching. Truly, some leaders just don't have the interest, the patience, the energy. They want to direct and demand and then move on. And I'm not, well, I am judging. I will say I, I'm judging. I don't think that's necessarily a great leadership approach. It's definitely not a great coaching approach. Direct and demand and then move on. It's the, it's the essence of what I called hit and run coaching. Um, I'm going to swoop in. Something's not the way that I want it. Uh, bam, bam, bam. Do this, this, and this, and then, and then move on. And, and I might be a little oversensitive to it because in my early years, I, I, had, a, I had a hit and run leader. Um, Man, he he traveled a, a very large territory, and when he would visit my office, where I was the general manager of a particular location, um, 
he would swoop in for a day and it was bam, 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 and then swoop out. And um, we, we called him Hurricane Steve because it just felt like a whirlwind when, when, when he came in. And he, he thought he was doing a great job. And, and most of us, we didn't necessarily know any better. But when I look back at it now, it created no actual value because he didn't actually have any interest in coaching us, in helping us. He was just looking to bam, 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 you know, do his hit and then, and then move on. So second trait, a genuine interest and an energy for coaching because coaching effectively, it takes mental energy. It takes time. Third trait, loyalty and truly caring about the other person. A coach wants the best performance out of his or her, quote, players because that's what's best for the players and that's what the players want as well. A coach understands the player is the client. The person I'm coaching is my client. And having that loyalty loyalty to them, that, that care for them, it comes through. It absolutely comes through. If you don't have that sense of loyalty, I'm here to help you be the best version of you possible. Um, if that If that energy and passion and caring doesn't come through, it is going to have an impact on your ability as, as a coach. Um, we already talked about the fourth trait, which is humility and self-awareness, being able to recognize you may not know everything. You may not have all of the information that you need. And self-awareness tends to lead toward more uh, questions, more exploration, more willingness to explore other possibilities and options. Um, and then the final trait, organization and collaboration, having a process for coaching one of the challenges with some leaders as coaches is when their coaching is a bit scattered, disorganized, when it doesn't seem to flow, when there's no particular process around it or no process-oriented collaboration around it, when it just feels very ad hoc, it just occurs uh, willy-nilly whenever it occurs, that can be very challenging for the coachee uh, and it doesn't necessarily produce the optimal result. So those four traits, and I'm going to you know, assume as you're listening to this that you're uh, assessing yourself, you're asking yourself, um, am I competent and observant as, uh, as a leader coach? Do I have a genuine interest and energy for helping others? Do I have loyalty to them? Do I care for them? Is, is this about them? As a leader coach, am I about them? As a leader coach, do I have humility and self-awareness? Do I spend time asking about myself and my own capabilities? And then finally, do I have an organized process? Do Is there a recognizable process in, in what I'm doing and a process to our collaboration? Do we have a cadence, a timeline? Do we finish meetings with particular action items? And is there follow-up on those action items, so to speak? And so we're gonna dive into some of these traits in a little more detail. Um, with all of that said, I think I can divide leaders into one of two coaching styles. Some leaders tend to have a more, a more directive approach. Some tend to have a more facilitative approach. The, the extreme versions of this are the, the, you know, the punisher and the cheerleader, but let's you dial it back in a bit. So not an extreme punisher and not an extreme cheerleader. Um, the directive approach is a leader who has a pretty firm view that 
they know what needs to be done, they know what needs to happen, and so they they coach very directly to what needs to happen. They share very overtly. The facilitative approach tends to be more of, hey, let me ask you questions. How would you approach this? What have you tried in the past? What have you tried that that worked somewhat? What have you tried that didn't work? What other thoughts do you have? Can you tell me more about what it helped you if? And the uh, the intent in describing these two different approaches is not to say that one approach is better than the other. In fact, both approaches are, can be very helpful depending upon the situation. The challenge I see with some leaders is we all tend to be a natural gravitator toward one approach or the other. So I'll be I'll be quite transparent. My instinctive natural coaching approach is to be directive. Um, there's probably you know a reason that I'm in the world of training and coaching development, leadership development, uh, because I someone the way someone phrased it was you're really comfortable telling people what to do. Okay, all right. So I will I I'll accept that as a um, an observation or an occasional criticism. So my natural style tends to be more directive, um, which of course makes me comfortable in an environment like this where the, the 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 webinar format does not allow for interaction, for feedback, for dialogue, discussion. By its nature, this is like a one-way format. So I'm comfortable with that. And I have enough humility to recognize this isn't always the way that works. Oftentimes, a much more facilitative approach is going to be more effective, particularly for someone who is quite competent and you're simply looking to coach or guide them from one level of competence up to a new level of competence. Um, relatively new and young employees are looking for the answers. They are sponges. They are sort of empty buckets and they're looking to be filled. And so oftentimes when you have relatively junior or new employees or an employee who's new to a particular situation, a new position, um, they're probably looking for more directive coaching from you rather than facilitative. Because frankly, if I don't know what to do, if I don't have any great ideas, if I don't have a point of view, you asking me a bunch of questions about, hey, what do you think you should do? What, what have you tried that works? It's not going to do me any, any good. I'm looking for the answers. However, as we progress in our career, as we progress in our competency, and I'll take it to the extreme, when you get to a point where you are, you are a senior level leader, you are probably not looking for somebody to direct you. You are actually probably looking for somebody to ask you uh, for feedback, to ask you for guidance. So what we find when we're developing training programs for senior level leaders is we have to create a facilitated architecture that actually allows the leader to co-create the training with us as opposed to just facilitating the training or facilitating the dialogue because at that level of senior leadership, they are not empty buckets. They are not sponges. They have a world of experience. They have a lifetime of success. And so we co-create with them in order to 
deliver information with a style that's actually going to going to work for them. So I I found I found that one of the um Meta, I'm not sure if metaphor or analogy is the right term. The but the, the 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 metaphor that I like to use in terms of adjusting one's coaching approach or style is using a ladder as um, an analogy, because um, the way I think of the, the the coaching ladder at the at the lower rungs of the ladder is when you have an individual in a particular area with relatively low current competency or skill and at the high rungs of the ladder you're having somebody with relatively high current competency or skill and as you move up the ladder or as that individual moves up the ladder your level of direction to that person uh, should evolve as as well so when you've got someone at the lower end of the ladder um, they need high guidance they oftentimes need the coach to make the decision for them, the coach to say, hey, here's something I'd like you to try. Here's a way I'd like you to go with this. And oftentimes they are quite open to that because they don't have the context for a facilitated dialogue. They're not looking for, hey, tell me three ways that you might try this. Let's talk through it. They're looking for, it, again, at the lower rungs of the ladder. At the, at the higher rungs of the ladder, like the very highest rungs, I think leaders do tend to instinctively get that you are less directive at that approach. You're asking the the employee or the person that you're coaching or the person that you're giving feedback to, you're asking them to make decisions. You're asking them, you're you're guiding their thinking more than their actual actions. Um, where we sometimes, I think, or perhaps oftentimes, get into the most challenging situations is in the mid rungs of the ladder because you may have a, an employee or a coachee who perceives themselves to have greater competency than you perceive them. So you may view them as toward the lower end of the ladder, they may view themselves as, as toward the upper end of the ladder. So you get, a, you get a disconnect in terms of the coaching style that you think makes sense versus the coaching style that they think makes sense. Uh, but as someone moves up the ladder from no skill to limited skill to skill that's visible and you you can see and then and then you develop into more and then finally to that expert level of skill, your approach to guiding them and coaching them transitions from hey I'll show and I'll show it I'll do it I will tell you exactly what to do to I'll I'll direct you with questions and instructions and then. Uh, then you advance to, hey, I'm going to guide you more with, with, with questions and perhaps observations. And then once they get to that point where they are skilled and they're, they're looking to develop more skills, you can actually step back and simply ask them to keep you posted on their development and their learnings. And then finally, when someone reaches that very expert level, unless there's a specific situation that occurs, you're, sometimes the best coaching is no coaching is simply acknowledging, in fact, you've arrived at an, a level of expertise in this that goes beyond my ability to help you. So then I might consciously shift to being more of a cheerleader when I see you do th doing things that are, that are exceptionally well. Now, that may also mean that there are other areas, though, beyond the particular area of our focus, where you are at lower rungs of the ladder. So what makes this a bit complicated is we all probably exist 
on multiple ladder rungs at any given point in time. Um, so when it comes to uh, technical skills, I might be at a very high rung of the ladder. And then when it comes to some of my interpersonal softer skills, I might, might be at the mid-level rung of a ladder. And when it comes to particular skills, I'll give you one, for example, when it comes to um, the leadership skill of accepting feedback from others, perhaps I might be even further down on the rungs of the ladder because I don't particularly, I'm not particularly adept at handling challenging feedback graciously or effectively. Um, that I'm, I'm not saying that that's necessarily true about me. I'm just saying that could be an example of existing on multiple rungs of the ladder. While in fact, it's probably an area where I do have some uh, definite room for, for growth and development. Some of you might be familiar with the situational leadership model. And, and in, in many ways, the situational leadership model is exactly what we are talking about here. We're just using a different metaphor. So instead of the, 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 the grid of going from, um, if you're familiar with the four-factor grid of the situational leadership model, you move from uh, grid uh, one to two to three to four, where you move from directing to coaching to supporting to delegating. Virtually, it's the same concept, but simply delivered with a different uh, analogy of the ladder versus the four-factor grid. And what I've found the reason I have gravitated toward using the latter um, is simply that I, I, I've recognized that in um, my own conversations and training and leadership development programs, it tends to be a model that um, people do remember and they can align with because oftentimes situations don't fit necessarily neatly into a particular uh, grid uh, within a pattern. Oftentimes they do, but sometimes they don't. And so I, I have just gotten more. Uh, practical use out of the alignment ladder. So I thought I would, I would share it in this conversation. But what do you do if you've got a situation where um, you're not really sure if the area in which you're coaching is related to attitude or the skill of the person? Um, what do you do when you have a person who seems to have the requisite knowledge and skills and abilities necessary to achieve what we would call satisfactory results, but their performance is still not satisfactory. The performance issue, they're, they're not applying particular competencies. Um, what do you do when it feels like, hey, they're, I think they're capable, they're just not doing it? Um, where you have to ask yourself, is this a motivation issue? Is this an attitude issue? What, where, is this a personality issue? What's, what's really going on here? And I have a series of questions that I use that really are designed to help me kind of get under the hood of an individual and, and help me assess to what degree um, is this a skill issue, to what degree is it an attitude issue, or is it some other kind of issue. I've had circumstances where ultimately I determine it's a personal energy issue, that what, what appears to be low motivation is in fact low low energy. and 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 by assessing the situation more accurately, we were able to, to to diagnose and develop solutions more accurately. But the question, my 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 coaching analysis questions flow like this. So I'll verbalize the, these to you. It starts with identifying the specific 
behavior or the specific discrepancy as a, as a coach leader, and then and asking the question, is it worth my time and effort? That's question number one, because there are going to be certain behaviors that frankly just aren't worth the time and effort to, to address them. Uh, minor uh, frustrations, minor annoyances, or just minor issues. Hey, it's not it's not my way, it's not the way I would do it, but is it really worth it? And if, it, if the answer is no, then you just, you just ignore it and move on. You accept it and you move on and you accept that you're not going to be addressing it. If on the other hand, you've decided, okay, um, yes, it is problematic, whatever the issue or behavior might be, it is problematic. Okay, so then you ask yourself, do they know the behavior is problematic? And if you aren't sure, now, if you're sure that they know, fine. But if you aren't sure, if there's any doubt at all, the answer is simple. You simply tell them in in without taking a lot of time, without putting a lot of emotion into it, but you factually address that this particular behavior is problematic. I'm amazed at the number of times people are behaving in a particular way. They have no idea that the the, the behavior is 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 a challenge um, or is is viewed as problematic. So simply addressing, is the behavior problematic? If there's any question at all, let them know. Do they know, now assuming they do know that the behavior is problematic, do they know why, or I'm sorry, do they know what they're supposed to do and why? So they recognize the behavior that they currently are exhibiting is problematic, but do they know what they are supposed to do and do they know the why behind it and if the answer is yes, fine. But if the answer is in any way in question, then simply tell them. Let them know. Communicate upfront very directly what they're supposed to do instead and the why behind it. Then you ask yourself, do they know how to do it? In simple situations, that answer is probably obvious. But if they don't know how, or if you aren't sure that they know how, because sometimes people don't even know how to acknowledge that they don't know how. So if they don't know how, the answer is you show them, you demonstrate, you show, you tell them how to do it. But then we get to some of the more interesting questions. Are there obstacles beyond their control? Depending upon the particular situation, is there anything getting in the way? While you may have laid out, here's how I want you to do this, whatever it is, are there obstacles beyond their control? And if there are, remove the obstacles. But in order to know that there are obstacles, you have to ask yourself the question and be willing to explore the situation. Are there obstacles beyond their control? Do they think that your way will not work or that their way is better? And I'll give you a, a specific circumstance um, with the uh, VP of sales that I mentioned before, who was spending a lot of time on late stage sales pipeline management. Um, she was very frustrated because she felt that her team of 18 salespeople, they were not entering enough data into the salesforce.com uh, system. And she wanted to use that as her dashboard. She essentially, her mental model was spending time at her desk, pouring through salesforce.com, looking for data trends, looking for you know, information that where she could make make adjustments or have insights, whatever that might be. So, um, but what she was finding was that oftentimes there would be opportunities in Salesforce with inconsistent data, 
not complete notes, no notes at all. And she was directing her salespeople, hey, I need you at the end of every call, uh, I need you to, to to put complete notes into uh, into Salesforce in order to uh, have the, for me to have all the information that I need. Well, what she was not recognizing was that many of her salespeople had back to back to back meetings throughout their days, and those that were in the field, they would finish a meeting and they would be immediately be driving to the next meeting and then having another one. So many of their days were filled with meetings. And so even a salesperson who wanted, who said, okay, I, I, I think she's right. And I want to make sure that after every sales call, I'm going to uh, fill out the, the, correct, the correct forms and make sure that I update Salesforce. It, there, were, there were obstacles beyond their control, meaning their, their schedule. And so without a recognition that there was this obstacle beyond their control, um, they were going to be at loggerheads forever. Now, ultimately, they did come to a, a recognition, a realization that there was this scheduling issue, and uh, she was not able to lighten their schedule load, but they did come to uh, an accommodation uh, be because of that, that scheduling challenge. Do they think that your way will not work? And in this case, her sales reps, most of them felt what you're asking us to do simply will not work. And so what most of them were doing, they were collecting up their, their handwritten notes, and at the end of each day, they were either uh, updating Salesforce. Um, some of them were complaining because this was bleeding over into their evenings. Uh, so at home, they would go home at the end of the day and they would do their Salesforce updating, which didn't feel fair to them and was taking up hours of time. Um, and But they felt that that was better, that was more more workable, but some of them, had actually adjusted their schedules where they had one day out of the week where they used that as in-office time to get all of their in-office work done and get their, their their updating done. They felt that their way work would work better. Would it actually work better? I, you know, I don't I don't actually know that, but it's the question that a coach would be asking. Number one, are there obstacles beyond their control? And then do they think that your way will not work or their way is better? And then the next question is, is there a way to flex the requirements to align with either the individual's natural competencies or strengths or the situation? And so sometimes as a leader coach, being willing to flex the requirements that you have to align with the person doesn't mean that you can't always do that, but there may be circumstances where flexing on your end is actually the best coaching possible. Next question, do they have other priorities? In other words, yeah, you're asking them to do certain other things, but is but do they have other priorities? And in fact, with this particular sales VP, their sales reps had absolutely other priorities in terms of getting 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 sales activity completed and actually driving sales results. Salesforce.com was at the very bottom of their priorities uh, because you know, none of their commissions were based on what they posted into Salesforce.com. Commissions were based on actually achieving sales results. The next questions on my list are, does their desired performance produce positive consequences? In other words, if they do what you're asking them to do, is there some positive consequence for them? The, the challenge for this particular VP was that for those people who actually did exactly what she was asking them to do, the, the only positive consequence was that she was off their backs. 
but uh, but even that wasn't necessarily positive because she was on their backs for, for for other things. So there really wasn't a positive consequence to the desired behavior. Next question, does the desired performance produce actual or perceived negative consequences? And in that particular case, yes. Sales reps who took the time at the end of every sales call to fill out the forms and enter the data actually were able to go on fewer sales calls each day. So when they adjusted their schedule in order to have the time to enter the data, they had fewer sales calls, which actually showed up on her tracking as well. So then she would begin coaching them to, it doesn't seem like you're seeing enough people. You're not having enough conversations. You're not, your productivity metrics are behind, uh, behind your peers. So even when they produced the desired performance, it produced uh, uh, an actual negative consequence. The next question on my list is, does the problematic performance produce positive consequences? In other words, if, you, if you're performing in a problematic way, is it actually producing a positive consequence for you? And then if you're performing in a problematic way, does it produce a negative consequence for you? Frankly, if you're performing in a problematic way and it is in some way producing a positive consequence or in no way producing a negative consequence, in all likelihood, um, uh, it is not going to be effective performance uh, uh, coaching uh, because uh, your problematic performance actually is, is working for you. The final two questions are, are there personal problems interfering and could they do it if they really chose to? So these coaching analysis questions really are designed to help you get under the hood of what's really going on with the particular coaching situation. Um, and with that, as I look at the clock, I want to be respectful of everyone's time. So uh, we're going to wrap things up at this point. We'll be providing uh, this information to those of you who have joined. So you'll have a chance to access these questions. And hopefully this has helped you in some way. And we will be um, certainly providing this or circling back with you with this information. So at this point, I appreciate your engagement for the last hour. I know it's gone by very fast and we've covered a lot of information in a short period of time. So thank you very much. And um, hopefully we'll see you again sometime soon. Thanks.